Welcome back, dear listeners. We are very grateful to have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Neil McLaughlin, who is a professor of sociology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He writes about the sociology of intellectuals, knowledge, and ideas, which are highly relevant in our very politically turbulent times. How are you today? Very well, very well. We're going to be talking about higher education in Canada, the sociology of social movements here, changes in Canadian values through the lens of something called post-materialism, and everyone's favorite Russian refugee, Jordan Peterson. We'll also be covering old (laughs) theories and thinkers that could help explain many of our modern predicaments. So let's jump right into it with a very current topic. Academia seems to be ground zero for much of today's political battles surrounding deplatforming, free speech, political correctness, all that stuff. Much of the writing I encounter online about the tilt of universities towards indulging these politics either tend to sensationalize them or they act like there's nothing concerning at all about them. So you wrote a very nice piece called Rich Private Colleges in the U.S. Are Fueling Inequality and Right-Wing Populism. And uh, you found the sweet spot between those two perspectives, in my opinion. You argue that it's disproportionately elite and small liberal arts colleges that have become incubators of cultural wars. Students are treated as customers at these universities, and thus there is an incentive to cater to them. So can you talk a little bit about this further and how you think this plays a role in muddying political waters and fueling right-wing populism? Okay, so... uh so, you know, I really like those colleges, you know, Oberlin College in Ohio and some of these private colleges in the U.S., Yale and Columbia. So I'm not really bashing those colleges. Mm-hmm. They're good, you know, they, they have really good education, really good students and, and good, good faculty. But they cost fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. That's what the tuition is. And so they're highly, highly stratified in elite places and they treat the students who tend to come from really privileged backgrounds anyway, although there's some people who get into this, the colleges who are not privileged and they have a great opportunity to move up, which is terrific. But that combination of such expense and some, such coddling sometimes I think gives rise to sort of unreasonable behavior on the part of the students. And I think it creates tension in the rest of society. People are looking at the you know, these spoiled rich kids kind of thing. And Trump, you know, exaggerates that. And there's all these websites that say, look what the faculty are doing or the students are doing at these colleges. So that's kind of what I'm talking about, you know. And you make an interesting point because, like you said, a lot of the, I guess, people on the right point to this and they say, look, this is such a problem and it's coming from these universities or um, these like uh, liberal arts type departments, but it's not quite that that's the root of the problem. It's actually the incentives, the the privatization of these universities and like the profit incentive that's sort of creating these issues. That, that's what I think. Yeah, that's what I think. You know, it's actually a kind of the, some of the most unreasonable actions. At Oberlin, the, the university lost like $41 million lawsuit because they backed students who were they, and they were doing a, uh, a boycott against a local bakery. And it was really the, the university was backing that because of, a, of an incident to, around shoplifting and race. 
And so there you had a, ca- a case of a very wealthy college <laughs> taking the side of students in a case of, well, it almost certainly wasn't really about racism uh, and losing a massive lawsuit. And it's really about kind of like privilege, this wealthy college in this small town. That's really kind of what it was about. It wasn't about racism or other larger issues, I don't think. And do you think the inability to see that is deliberate? Uh, Like if, for example, conservatives are really concerned about the state of discourse, you think that they would pay more attention to the actual causes of this problem, which... I I think they're being really dishonest, the conservatives. I love Oberlin College, and I think the people who attack Oberlin and Oberlin students are being dishonest. And so so I think the conservatives are being dishonest. I don't take their side. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, you know, at Oberlin, I think the faculty at Oberlin, they could have said, you know, students, there's, there's racism in the community, and there's racism we have to deal with, and we're on your side. But in this particular boycott, you're not being reasonable, so you got to back off a little bit or think about it. And and the university didn't say that. You know, they didn't really. No one was really afraid to sort of have an honest conversation with the students. And they're paying fifty, sixty thousand dollars for tuition. I think that has something to do with uh, That's so much money. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> like, oh yeah. my god. Yeah, you're paying that much money. I'm going to let you uh, say whatever you want. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There was that. There were those celebrities, too, recently that they, like, paid for their kids to get into those schools. Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I wrote about it. I wrote about it, a piece in the, in the conversation. Yeah, and mm. so, and so on, there's, a, there's a case where it's like the way it gets framed in the media, it's like this celebrity or this dishonest celebrity or kid, mm-hmm. you know, giving $50,000, $60,000, $70,000 to get their kid into one of these elite colleges, which is illegal. Mm-hmm. But if you if you if you spent two million dollars and bought a building for the college and then the college let you in, that wouldn't be illegal. That would be you know, you're a good uh, <laughs> alumni. Right. So the real problem there is the college is costing 50, 60 thousand dollars. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Canadians are probably like, whoa, with that number. So do you think that that's why uh, these problems are less prevalent in Canadian universities? Is it just down to the fact that we have kind of a stronger public I I, I, I do. do. It's a complicated question, and it's, you know, obviously I'm trying to make a large generalization. But, yeah, I basically do. And let me say something about that. um, I'll say something really kind of controversial here, you know. Like Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren, they were, like, for having – uh, you know, paying uh, paying off the student debts mm-hmm. and making free free tuition by public colleges in the United States. Uh, I'm for that, totally for that. But what they didn't say is those those private colleges they don't pay taxes. So Oberlin they have an endowment. An endowment is basically an investment that the university owns. Right? Harvard has a 44 billion dollar endowment. They don't pay taxes on that endowment. They invest it in the stock market, and the university doesn't pay taxes on that. The university, Oberlin College, owns property in that small town that they're in. They don't pay property taxes on that. There's a whole bunch of things where these private colleges are basically subsidized by the, by the public. Right. So, so I kind of agree with Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. I think we should have free public colleges 
But I think that the way to pay for it is to tax these private colleges. Mm. Because there's a lot of money there. And that would make things more. You could get enough money to send everybody to, to public colleges. And in Canada, I think we should keep tuition down. We should, we should make a serious effort to make tuition, like, like Norway and Sweden, make it free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Do you uh, see us <laughs> sort of trending towards the American style? Because tuition rates are slowly creeping up and they're trying to get more and more students. Even when tuition isn't going up, they are trying to get more students in. Right? 100%, 100% we're moving in that direction. Right. We're 100 percent moving in that direction. And of course we are, because there's rankings, you know, 100, you know, the, you know, I'm speaking as an intellectual guy. You know, I'm not a, a dean or a chair. You know, I'm not representing McMaster. I'm just speaking what I think. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not speaking kind of policy oriented, you know. But, yeah, we're moving in that direction because we're competing with Harvard or Yale or those colleges. So the university is trying to move up in their rankings. And, uh, and we spend money trying to sort of like become more like those top elite colleges. That's what we're, that's what's happening. All the colleges are trying to do that. Um, there's lots of reasons the deans and the presidents are not bad people. There's these rankings and there's these competition and they get a rewarded for doing that. And yeah, we're absolutely moving in the, in that direction, especially U of T and UBC and McGill, the more elite Canadian colleges, their universities, they're moving in that direction. And they're pulling everybody along where the focus becomes research and research ranking and, a, and far less about teaching and engaging students. And I think we should go in the opposite, dire- opposite direction. Yeah, that's interesting because, like, for example, I go to Guelph and Guelph is not like a, oh, my God, top no. tier school or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting a, I, I feel a fantastic education yeah. because there is less of a focus yeah. on like impact factor, like publish, publish, publish and like, um, you know, crank out as many studies as possible. And you have to say this and avoid anything controversial. You know, there's always going to be issues, but I do find that it's a yeah. real positive that I'm not going to one of the. top universities where those concerns do sort of hang over your head and ironically they get in the way of having getting a good education right 100 percent. i think we do canadian universities do a pretty good job i like to complain and you know criticize things but in the because that's my role as an intellectual. I still have, so I Me too, I complain about everything. <laughs> and I, like, I like your website because I can see you guys are all like that. You know, and that's great. Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. Because I think we do a pretty good job, but, but I think we need to do better in terms of focusing on engagement and students and publishing, yes, 100%. We need really good research and we need, but, but the focus needs to be on kind of engagement with students and, and, uh, um, and what are your actual thoughts on, um, like, I, I read your paper, Canadian Sociology for Sale, Academic Branding yeah. in the Neoliberal Age. Yeah. Um, and I went to Western for Media Information and Technoculture, and that was back in 2014, and students were protesting the amount of funding and resources from private stakeholders that were being funneled toward yeah. research chairs into the sciences, Ivy Business School, etc. Yeah. Uh, and MIT was losing funding every year. Our professors were making ridiculously low salaries. And every year I check back, um, and they're teaching fewer and fewer courses. So I'm concerned that eventually programs like MIT, which I'm so grateful to have studied, I thought it was an incredible program, I'm afraid... Um, and being pessimistic that they will eventually become obsolete because corporate interests are only supporting 
the type of researchers and professors hired that will benefit the country and fulfill like the bottom line. What it, is there hope? <laughs> <laughs> I think there. I think there is hope. And having podcasts okay. like this, where you're talking talking ideas, I mean, that's part of it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and there are a lot of faculty who really care about teaching. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't want to be teaching in the classroom all the time. I like to be doing research too. You know, so there has to be kind of a balance. But yeah, I think we have to. I think that that competition for research excellence and funding and, you know, people are getting rewarded for less and less teaching. Uh, I, 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 uh, I learned about that when I was in the States because I did my PhD in the States. And, and so I was at a program that wasn't like that. But I met some people at a, a college, I won't say which one, uh, where I was teaching uh, as a sessional. And, and the faculty used to tell the, the graduate students there that when, if you get a job at an interview and they ask you about, teaching questions you don't want to go to that college because that's not a good place to go because they they care about you teaching right and that's sort of like the elite american research model right and we want to resist that in canada i think i think we we want to push back and in terms of sort of creating like you say for example um post-secondary should be free ideally Um, how do we maintain an egalitarian education system while like uh, maintaining that sort of um, research excellence standards right because I agree I think and I don't think that financial barriers should be a barrier to attending post-secondary but clearly there's also this tension with trying to get as many students in as possible and then what happens is they just kind of get treated like customers and it's not about uh, cultivating um, academic excellence and all that stuff. Um, Absolutely. I know, uh, like Barbara Ehrenreich, yeah. I, that's a name I've only ever read and not said before, so I hope I'm <laughs> pronouncing that right, who talks yeah, about, right. you know, the rise of the professional managerial class. Yeah. And uh, now there's all these degrees for things you never used to need a degree for, like ho- hotel management or like hospitality and like all sorts of things. And it's just Floristry. cultivating this type of. <laughs> Say yeah. that again? Floristry, <laughs> yeah, all sorts of things. <laughs> Edible <Where>? arrangements. <laughs> and what happens is that it kind of cultivates this like managerial mindset. It's not about, um, you know, academics used to be like challenging and criticizing everything and and being the first ones to point out that there's some sort of problem because they were outside of all these institutions. But now they're part of the institutions and they're managing the institutions. So, like, how do you? I kind of went in a lot of different directions there, so that's pick right. up wherever you've <laughs> right. No, that's fair enough. You know, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's a friend of mine because I, I knew her when I was a young man. Uh, oh, wow. In New York. Yeah, so she's been a big influence on me. And so, so you know, that's a kind of a, I mean, she's a, pu- people would call her like a public intellectual, not so much a professor. Right? She taught a little bit at Queens College where I used to teach in New York City for a while. But mostly she was basically a writer. And it's tougher to do that in Canada because the market's uh, lower. You know, there's like a less uh, sales, right? If, they, if, you say, if, you come, if you have a, a best-selling book in Canada, it's harder to make a living mm-hmm. on that. And the market in the U.S. is bigger. So, so I think we need to encourage more of that, people who are kind of writers and social critics and not purely academics. But it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough thing. Everyone's responsible for this. You know, I think that professors don't like to teach as much, and we're partly responsible. We become like managers. 
But the, you know, the business community is responsible for this too, because part of the reason why people who maybe not don't really necessarily want to have be in a class and learn things, they're in the classroom because they want a credential. There's a massive credential inflation mm -hmm. where you get jobs that you didn't you didn't require a, a degree 20 years ago or 50 years ago. You need an MA now or a BA, and the business community are part of that. We have to get that under control. That's sort of a, an irrational kind of dynamic, I think, where we're all getting student loans and everybody's going to going to college, and uh, maybe maybe we need to sort of streamline things away and spread out the education and the knowledge of it through the help of society a little bit, not just in that four years. Not easy to do. I don't have any answer to that, but <laughs> yep. I think um, that's, that's kind of the, the directions we have to go. So you've done a lot of comparative stuff between Canada and the United States, um, mm -hmm. which, yeah, we love to compare ourselves to the United States because we're so similar, <laughs> yet we're so yeah. different. <laughs> we're way <Right>. cooler. <laughs> um, so since we're talking about intellectuals and, and, and academia and all that, so what are some of the differences between Canada and the United States when it comes to that type of stuff? Yeah. You know, so I'm, you know, I'm really kind of ambivalent about this, right? Because on the one hand, those elite colleges, they're unfair and they lead to inequality, but they also create like a lot of intellectual energy. So you have a lot of really good intellectuals in the U.S., right? And people like Barbara Aaron, right? We have mm -hmm. versions like that. Linda McQuaig here in Canada, I think, is a really good example mm -hmm. of, a, of a really important intellectual here. So I like the kind of energy of the U.S. and that kind of, that kind of intellectual energy. And I think that's something we should try and do a little bit better on. But at the same time, uh, the other part about the U.S. is there's a kind of anti-intellectualism that's pretty deep in the culture. They basically like to beat up on elites and intellectuals, even more so than here. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's, you're seeing that with Donald Trump, I'm afraid, <laughs> and, that kind of the, and the whole kind of protest against the, the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. I've seen some, uh, or I read somewhere that like Canadians were a bit more um, obedient about like lockdown measures and stuff like that than the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you think it comes down to that sort of, you know, they say Canada's all about peace, order and good governance, yeah, whereas I, the United States is like life, liberty, give me death. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the origins of it, right? And look at our, our Senate. Our Senate is not elected. It's, it's uh, appointed. The Americans would never put up with that. You know, they have an elected Senate. They elect their judges too sometimes, they, they don't they? They elect their judges. That's yeah, which crazy. Is one of, which is one of the reasons why they have such a, a large prison system. You know, mm. that is part of the, some people will say, well, it's because of, uh, you know, because of the private prisons, which, you know, I think Canadians would never go along with that. And it's partly that. that. But it's also the kind of the populism uh gone wild it's like the judges will say i'm going to put that guy in prison for 10 years somebody's running against that that person and say i'll put him in, in jail for 20 years you know the sort of uh you know the, kind of the political system kind of takes off and instead we have we need a, a responsible judge who like thinks about it a little bit and is reasonable so yeah i think i think that that's the populism is getting in the way and and there's some positive aspects of that but it's kind of out of control a little do, bit. Do you think that maybe also too, um, 
the clapback from American citizens protesting, maybe more so than Canadians, may also be due to the different responses the Canadian American governments have had, like supporting their citizens during this pandemic, like with money and like their access to testing and healthcare and stuff. Do you think that kind of dictates the citizen response? Yeah, it's part of it. I think you're right. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, a, Ainsley. Yeah, it's a very good point. And they have Donald Trump. You know, a lot of it is about Donald Trump right now in, in the U.S., you know. <laughs> Yeah. So you Trump. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you looked at Noam Chomsky Mm -hmm. specifically as like the idea of someone who's considered a public intellectual, Mm -hmm. and you did some comparative analysis between Canada and U.S. Then, so can you tell us a little bit about um, your research with that, and sort of like what's the relevance and and some interesting things you found. Yeah, and I'll, I'll speak about that article. I wrote it with James Lanigan, who's a, a PhD student at Toronto, University of Toronto in sociology. So I'll just speak for myself, not from not with from James. And he sure. did a terrific job in that article. It's an absolutely excellent article. I work with him because he's really good at statistics and research, and I'm more like a general intellectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, he's a little bit more center, you know, moderate, and I'm more of a lefty. So I wanted to work with somebody so that we weren't biased around Chomsky, you know. I, so we really looked at the, you know, looked at the things, and and what you know what we what we what we found is I think that um, is that Chomsky is much more, he's, he's criticized much more harshly in the U.S. You know because and was he, this sorry around the time of manufacturing consent? So which of his ideas at work current at the time when you were looking at this? We went we went over like forty years, you know. So we. Uh, so we looked at the, the various, uh, you know, the various periods of time. So we looked at manu- manufacturing consent. The piece where he became like really, really famous was when uh, uh, Chavez from Venezuela held a copy of his book uh, at the UN at a speech, <laughs> and that kind of created a big thing. And then nine eleven, the kind of uh, after the war and terror, terror. That's when he got really famous. Like we saw much. And more. his thesis around manufacturing consent was like that the media, um, I don't want to use the word conspires because it's obviously not done sort of intentionally, but yeah. it like uh, certain incentives and interests coalesce yeah. to create a certain narrative yeah. that then severely constricts the available opinions to the public and stuff like that. Can you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, he he's not a, a a media scholar you know he's kind of a he was a linguist right so mm-hmm. he sort of, so he was kind of a and i think we need that's why i think he's kind of a public intellectual because those books that he was writing were not specialized media study books they were something that someone who was smart and interesting and read stuff could produce you know and i think we need more of that more than specialized kind of uh, we need specialized work too but, but I think, he, you know, things have changed now because he came out of the Vietnam War. And it is true when you look at the history of the Vietnam War, the New York Times really supported the American war in Vietnam and mm-hmm. really kind of like promoted the, the consensus. Um, so um, that was true then. And I think it is true now. But it's a little bit more complicated now. Because many of the of us who were critical of the New York Times and remain critical of the New York Times um, end up kind of like supporting the New York Times against Fox News. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things have become so polarized that the mainstream media like Fox, uh, uh, the New York Times or the Globe and Mail don't look so bad now 
when you have Fox News or Rebel Media. Or vice versa, right? Yeah. Some people were like, you know what? Trump doesn't look so bad when you've got Hillary Clinton <laughs> as my only other option. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, you're right. You're right. Yeah, of course. Also, your your analysis was primarily based on newspaper accounts of Chomsky through yeah. the years. Yeah. Um, and then you noted near the end that it would be worth investigating the role the Internet and social media and broader celebrity culture um, would play in the creation or determination of yeah. like a public intellectual. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think social media has changed today's notion of the public intellectual? And do you think this highly saturated and accessible media landscape makes it easier or more difficult to define or categorize someone as such? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. Uh, I think it's kind of like a double-edged sword, just like the, just like the Canadian-American differences, where their populism is democratic, but it kind of leads to <laughs> kind of a, a chaos in a certain way. Mm-hmm. The social media allows people like you who are doing this podcast to have a voice and to get out there. And I hope you continue to do that. And Free we need speech. Free speech. <laughs> and we have you know, the pop, the public intellectual used to be, you know, white guys from New York in the fifties, you know, it's kind of, so there are all these different voices out here, the indigenous intellectuals and women intellectuals, black intellectuals. So I think that, the, you know, that kind of media has created opportunities and, and, uh, to expand the conversation and that's fantastic on the other hand it has kind of like uh it's a bit of an issue of like uh quality control too There's fake a lot news of fake news all that <laughs> all that and just and it's kind of a mess of the conversations you know everybody's like you're going on twitter and there's like a hundred people talking to different people all at the same time and kind of all the, the craziness of some of the the twitter discussions is something i think we have to seriously address so how do you yeah how do you any thoughts on how to balance that even in terms of like worries about fake news it's like yeah that's a real concern but also all i've kind of seen from public intellectuals right now especially in canada is just like you're so dumb just listen to us it's not really a promotion of um civic engagement and critical thinking it's yeah. just you're listening to the wrong sources listen to these okay. sources which isn't critical thinking that's just you need I, to just do what we say which long term is not a good strategy and of course it creates resentment I so agree. you know i i have a really tough time with that because it's like this is obviously stupid but i also kind of can understand the quote lived experience <laughs> of someone who latches onto these things when they've been time and time again uh, disappointed by whatever what we've got right now as public experts yeah. who are increasingly we talk a lot about political polarization but also um, even within political quote tribes we're so separated it all comes down to that specialization and that division of labor we know so much about one little thing and we know almost nothing about everything else and then that makes it impossible to understand each other which makes it really hard to solve social problems 100 percent, 100 percent agree 100 percent agree i think that uh you know one thing that i think we need to do is i think we need a, a bigger and stronger cbc you know, we need some source, and but that, but to me, that means it has to be more politically diverse. Mm-hmm. It has to kind of expand the viewpoints that are allowed on CPC, so that it really sort of isn't in a kind of an echo chamber. And some people are not going to like that, yes. and it's kind of controversial. But I think if we don't have that, 
you know, it's it, it's the, the, the social media stuff is going to dominate over, over time. The other thing I would say really controversially that I would say is uh, in my field of sociology, I think sociology and academics in general need to move the discussion that goes on in their classrooms to the right. Not... Um, not, I'm not moving my position to the right. I'm staying well on the left. But I think that the conversation that happens in some of our social science uh, conversations is such a rarefied slice of what people actually think in the society. I mean, some things you can't allow in the classroom. I mean, you, can't, you, know, there, you can't allow you know, racism and, and and really kind of vicious nastiness. And of course you have to control that and you can't, there has to be limits on what goes on in the classroom. But I think the universities have become a little bit sort of out of touch with what's really going on and so specialized as, you, as you're saying that we're really not connecting to the conversation. That goes back to what we were talking about with the private universities. The private universities in the US are very liberal compared to the society, way more liberal. Our universities are more liberal, but they're not as more liberal than the American private universities. And then this gets into the whole discussion on like political correctness. Yeah. Because you see in a lot of post-secondary climates, it's actually quite terrifying. Like, for example, with the Lindsay Shepard case yeah. at Laurier, when she was just bringing up varying sides of um, a contentious issue. She was like from a clip from the agenda, which canceled. is just like a totally. <laughs> yeah. And this goes back to what Sonia was saying. It's funny because a lot of the times each side is um, so convinced that anyone who thinks critically about even like one small issue, um, they basically are totally against them and say that they're evil when a lot of the times these intellectuals probably share common goals and views with one another. And I actually just really wanted to quickly bring up like. I saw this, Sonia and I went to the Zizek and Jordan Peterson yeah. debate in Toronto. <laughs> right. And they're both and they're both known um, for their critiques against political correctness. Um, and the debate ended up being so civil and they yeah. ended up agreeing on some things, like particularly <laughs> that they believe the academic left are all too powerful and to blame right. for like language policing. Right. And then I felt like there was this sense of people being disappointed leaving because they wanted to see two views like right bash at one another and yeah yeah, i i just wanted to bring that up that's a great thing (laughs) i mean the lindsey shepherd thing i was very active on twitter on this and i don't really agree with where she's gone since that happened i think she says some things that i really i really have a problem with and i'd be be quite critical of her after what what happened but at the same time what happened to her at laurier was absolutely inexcusable there was no excuse for what happened to her I mean, she. If the faculty member doesn't want her to show the video, he should have told her what she he wanted to do, to do before. He just basically let her do do what she wanted. Like most TAs in the universities, most of the faculty let's let the TAs do whatever they want. She she did nothing wrong by showing that clip, and there was no excuse. And any faculty member who justifies what happened to her, I think, is absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. It's so. crazy. I remember being an undergrad like several years ago. And I mean, Brayden, we took an intro psychology course together. This would have been yeah. in like what, 2000 and 
10 years Four? ago. But we were talking about abortion. We were talking about gay rights. Like we were talking about all sorts. Of, I remember in like a fourth year political science class, we talked about incest. We talked mm-hmm. about rape and there were some men in the class who had some positions that I found odious, but I never at any point thought like this shouldn't, this conversation shouldn't be happening at all right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, it, it, it really has, but, but like you said, in terms of um, exposing, um, not changing your own position, but exposing students to more quote right wing views is so important if we want to have an intellectually vigorous left, right? Because you meet some people who have all these great intentions, but they clearly don't understand their opposition. They clearly don't understand a lot of the issues when they are faced with like a uh, uh, and fairly intelligent opponent they just get absolutely eviscerated because they aren't prepared to have an intelligent debate because they haven't been prepared because they're in an echo chamber or because they've been you know coddled i guess you could say in the in the university classroom and it's just it's not good for us (laughs) to not yeah to your point sonia um i have this position of having gone to my undergrad some like some 10 years ago and then returning in my later years now and even in that 10-year dis- uh, difference, I've noticed a slight change and there's, like, a lack of discourse. It's kind of more feeding, like, this is what we believe and, like, you're just supposed to assume. And maybe that's just the courses I'm taking, but I have noticed what Sonia just mentioned, just in that yeah. 10-year difference, that there's 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 just less, uh, this, there's no opinion. There's less opinion, sorry. Yeah. See, I, that's what I was saying about the private u- universities. What you're describing, I think, is real. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated thing. I mean, you have to manage classrooms, and, you know, you don't want to just have a free-for-all sure. because people will say some things that are not really acceptable. But but we've, I think we've dropped the ball, you know, in, in what you're describing. I think we are not allowing conversations to the classroom in, in the way that we need to. And that happened. It started at these elite private colleges. That was the kind of the... the uh, you know, the, the wet market in a way, if you sort of, <laughs> where, the, where it's not a virus. And, uh, but, but it's, but, it, but it's a, but it's a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a bad way of thinking, you know, that we can, that, uh, and I agree. I, I'm never trying to convince my students to be left wing. When I'm in my classroom, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I am left wing and I am going to say what I think. But my goal in the classroom isn't to convince people to be left wing. My goal in the classroom is to expose people to different ideas and to facilitate a conversation where people can kind of work out their own ideas. And we have to do more of that. I think, mm-hmm. I think what you said about the CBC is interesting, too. I do remember you uh, tweeting that because, again, people are like, oh, like these trash sites like Post Millennial and The Rebel. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's where people go when that's the only alternative. 100%. And it's just we need to offer people like a diversity of opinions in the mainstream if we don't want them going to these fringe websites. Ladies, we need to infiltrate the CBC. <laughs> the CBC. <laughs> we need to get our own show. I would love, love to. Well, I I think we need diverse forces in there, and I think we need to. And, you, and that, you're absolutely right. Doing this podcast, you get some experience, and you're going to be a really bad CBC or journalist or intellectual <laughs> if you just talk among yourselves. You got to go out and mix it up with people you disagree with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that is the training ground for uh, for engaging. And so I, I salute you for what you're doing here. 
Let's move on to Eric Fromm. <laughs> I, I tried nice. to do Why a German that thing. There. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty it's good. good. Um, so you argued in one paper that he is, he could be one of the most important psychosocial thinkers of the 20th century. So what makes you say that and what is meant by the so- psychosocial? Why is all that relevant to today? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm interested in kind of Eric Fromm. I mean, I wrote, my, I wrote a bunch of articles about him, about how he became a forgotten intellectual. So he was one of the most famous, popular-selling, and prestigious intellectuals in the 40s and 50s. He wrote a book called Escape from Freedom. You should read it sometime. It describes the sort of psychology of what we're living through today really well. It's, it was about the period of the 1930s when things were unraveling. And you had Hitler, and you had rising war, and, and you know, and xenophobia. And he, he, in describing that, he wrote that book uh, to a popular audience. It sold millions of copies, and then he continued to write uh, books that are criticizing society, offering different alternatives. But he wrote not to other academics, but he wrote to a popular audience. As a result, academics started to dismiss him and think they thought he was too popular precisely because he was trying to go outside of the university. So, uh, so I think if you kind of look at his kind of stuff, it's a model for speaking to the public. The ideas that he, that he offered are coming back today because he, he offered a critique of what, of narcissism and social narcissism. If you read Eric Fromm and you listen to, to Donald Trump, you'll see, Oh, <laughs> you know, there it uh, is. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there it is. And then and, uh, and, he, and he analyzed kind of like what happens to a society when the market takes over everything and everything's uh, being bought and sold. He wrote a book called Sustained Society. There's all kind of about that. He wrote a book called The Art of Loving, which was basically about how to have intimate relationships and connections with others in a society that sells everything on the market and has you selling your personality. So he wrote these, these, these books and it's psychosocial because part of the thing that happened is that as the university uh, took off in the 1930s and 40s and 60s and 70s and became such a big part of intellectual life, before that period, most intellectuals were not in the universities. There were very few jobs in universities. After, prof- after intellectuals became professors, everything became very specialized. So sociologists would do the sociology psychologists would do the psychology economists would look at things from an economic perspective and nobody tried to put them together so the psychosocial is an attempt to look at society in a sociological way but also integrate a psychological angle and maybe a little bit of a freudian angle but not in Fromm's case not an orthodox freudian not a kind of uh, you know old-fashioned freud but something a little bit more modern and outdated so why do you think that kind of got lost? You know, there's people talk a lot about how we live in like a neoliberal, hyper-rational society. Um, why did we turn away from that? And do you think there's been a resurgence of that recently? Is that sort of where your, why your interest lies there? Uh, turn away from what? From the kind of the... From the, the psychosocial. Pop- the psychosocial. Well, I think it's, yeah, I think it's partly the, the division of labor of different disciplines. You know, basically, sociologists basically said, well, psychology, that's in the psychology department. Oh, okay, I see. You know, we, our, our, our business 
is to explain things sociologically, just like economists. They like to explain things in economic terms. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Because I was I was wondering if it was like a sort of um, allergy to it to thinking about that. It's too foo foo. It's too like what are you talking about the unconscious? Like I don't care about that. I care about like yeah. something more. Yeah. Um, the, the Freud tangible. thing. The, the Freud thing. I think. Yes. I think. I think that. Um, so one issue is psychology, sociology. You know, kind of that those that that competition. Another issue is Freud. Yeah. And. I think Freud kind of became discredited because some of his ideas are old fashioned and didn't make sense. Um, and s- psychology became like more like biology, you know, and biological mm-hmm. sciences. And it's kind of like forgotten about unconscious. And I think there is an unconscious, you know. Yeah, there's definitely impulses. There's definitely these like desires people have that are hard to articulate and people who are successfully harnessing them right now are doing very well. So look at Zizek, for example, 100%. and look look at um, Jordan Peterson. 100%. 100%. They're both psychosocial thinkers. I, in terms of actually, I have to bring up Jordan Peterson again, but yeah, I, I find him so his whole fame so interesting because he is like a quote-unquote scholar of personality and then he's even become like a lifestyle guru for a particular audience so like young men and boys um and you could look at his infamy from his fans like overarching discontent with like liberal policing and stuff while also looking at him as a celebrity figure um like kind of through an eric Fromm lens and address the sociology of emotions he evokes in his supporters. 100%. So, like, would you attribute a lot of his notoriety to a psychoanalytic point of view? And yeah, I mean, what I'm I'm actually working on something comparing Eric Fromm to Jordan Peterson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> part of my part of my and part of why I want to do that is like it's such a polarized debate, right? I mean, everybody people hate Peterson, they love him, right? And so. So by going to Eric Fromm, I want to kind of like say, let's take a, let's take a step back, right? And say, so, okay, you hate him, you love him, you admire him, you want to ban him. Okay, okay, whatever, you know, like that. Let's put that aside. And then, and then let's think about him as a phenomenon. And he's very similar to Eric Fromm because Eric Fromm did therapy. Jordan Peterson did therapy. Uh, Eric Fromm was a sociologist, but Peterson's kind of like a social psychologist. Eric Fromm wrote a book called The Art of Loving, which is a self-help book. Jordan Peterson wrote, wow. you know, <laughs> for life, right? Yeah. And Eric Fromm was rejected by the academic establishment. Jordan Peterson is rejected by the academic establishment. And they were both rejected by the sort of the intellectual establishment too, partly because they were writing to two popular audiences, Academics and intellectuals, they, they like to sort of like write to more uh, elite audiences. That brings them status. Mm-hmm. If you speak to the popular audiences a little bit too much, uh, it kind of threatens your status. So they're very similar. They're very similar. It's just that Fromm was more left-wing, which I tend to, you know, agree with. And Peterson less, you know, less left-wing, I'd say. And, you know, Fromm was supporting the 60s, the movements of the 60s. And Peterson's kind of like reacting against the, the, the movements. So, but, so that's sort of one issue. The other issue is if we're going to study this, 
this is the sociologist in me, I was going to say to people, you know what? If you want to say why people are supporting Jordan Peterson, you have to put your own viewpoints aside and talk to people, you know, and you have to sort of like take a step back a little bit because I, I'm seeing too much sort of assumptions about, not, not in what you said, but in sort of out, out, out in the, in, you know, when I talk to people about this, I think there are lots of assumptions around why people uh, are, are drawn to him. And I think we need to figure it out. And if, if we figure it out, I think there's probably a whole bunch of, and you implied that and you were saying that there's some people like his politics. Some people are kind of like him as a, a kind of a, a, a role model. Some people a hate guru. politics, a guru, absolutely <laughs> a guru. Fromm was a kind of a guru for his generation. Absolutely. And Zizek is a guru. It is, there's a guru element to it. There's also kind of a therapeutic element. He's saying stuff that's helping, you know, there's uh, and then some people are agree with his politics, kind of bashing on PC and all that stuff is mixed in, you know? And so I think if you want to understand what's happening, you have to kind of unravel it a little bit and separate it out and, and talk about it in a, a little more calm way is what I'd say. Why is there so much resistance to doing that? Because on the left, it used to be like, of course, you're going to examine sort of social factors, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm constantly bashing my head against the wall because it's like social factors, social factors, environment, like, it, it, like you know, you have to understand people's lived experience, yeah. all this stuff. But like only in these very like specific situations, like with everything else, it's like, no they're just bad or like yeah. whatever, just something super simplistic. And like, I don't understand that. Is that because, does that go back to like the education system not actually really doing a good job of helping people establish that type of thinking in their mind? It's just sort of like a paint by numbers. Like, well, you've already told me to think this, so I think this. So now when it comes to applying that logic to something else, I'm not gonna do it because I didn't actually learn how to think through these issues in that way. I'm just kind of repeating things I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> or is there something more to it? Or I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Why is it hard to do these? Not hard, but, you know, like, why isn't there a lot more people thinking about it this way? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm quite critical political, politically of Peterson. I mean, I think there's some things he did that made it harder to, to have a conversation with him. You know, there's some things that he, that he, that he did that were really polarizing and unhelpful. So I, I would say he has some responsibility mm -hmm. for that. I would say that, um, I, yeah, a lot of too many uh, academics that I know don't really talk to anybody who doesn't agree with them about anything. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, they were kind of stunned, you know, and, and surprised. And that's, that's not helpful, you know. It's not helpful. And I think Twitter just makes things nutty. You know, Twitter, you know, just polarizes things. And people are having a million different conversations at the same time. And they're projecting a lot of like emotions on things and misunderstandings. And then the situation we're in is really politically polarized. I mean, that's that's kind of hard too, you know. Uh, you wrote in the paper that I read on Eric from uh, there are political opportunities creating new interest in the psychosocial perspective. Yeah. So what are some of these political well, I, opportunities? I think that this idea of like you know the Donald Trumps. Behavior uh, kind of is kind of making people see. Fromm basically said, that if you want to do politics uh, and do a sociological political analysis, you have to have a psychological theory as well. And he had these really great analysis of Stalin and Hitler and Himmler and political kind of pathological characters. Now, Donald Trump is not Hitler or Stalin. He's not, uh, you know, he's not that pathological. But 
there's a kind of psychological, uh, you know, uh, dynamic there that I think people are seeing it. And it's kind of, uh, on the other hand, uh, from a psychosocial, so he wanted to do a political sociological analysis. You can't do a psychological analysis of your political opponents. You can't just say anybody who supports Trump is just basically crazy or bad person. That's not good sociological analysis. So, so I think there is a real opportunity to combine these things right now because everybody agrees that now there's a psychological element. We can see it every day with Donald Trump. So let's see if we can try and connect those things. That's one option. I think there's also mass, uh, there's a lot of depression out there. There's a lot of anxiety, you know, with COVID-19. And these things are not just individual things. They're kind of structural things. And and the kind of tension that you're seeing among students on on campuses and in the classroom and things, these things are psychological, but they're being created by the structures that people would be forced people into. And I think there's, so there's real opportunities to, to do a kind of a analysis of those things too. Those would be two examples, I think. Any other questions uh, before we move on, you guys? None. Thumbs up. <laughs> I, I didn't okay. know how to respond. Thumbs up. Okay. Okay. So, just getting into you. One of your interests is sort of post-materialism. Right. Um, the debate around that. So, what's all that about? Why distinguish between materialist? values which would be like the economic and the physical security and then the post-materials values which are more like freedom and self-expression and maybe smooshy things like that um (laughs) so yeah what are your what's been your sort of research and thoughts on all that now i you know i come at it from a kind of an intellectual history kind of past right so the person who talked about this originally was someone called abraham maslow Right. He has this hierarchy of needs, you know, of that kind of uh, hierarchy mm-hmm. of needs. Well, Abraham Maslow was a, a follower of Eric Fromm. He learned his, his, his ideas originally from Eric Fromm, and then he went off and made his own, uh, his own kind of theoretical innovations and broke with Eric Fromm. So that's why I'm interested in this. I'm interested in kind of the origins of that theory. And there's a sociologist or political scientist named Ronald Engelhart now, and he does research today when he goes through surveys and he, he asks the question, are people becoming more post-materialists? Are they more interested in autonomy, freedom, you know, self-actualization, and less about economics and kind of security? I don't really have a, a sort of a, you know, a take on that because mm-hmm. I take it more as a kind of intellectual history part and I'm interested in those issues. So I'd love to hear from 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 you. What do you think? Is that kind of? But I but I think it's a key issue, though. I do think it's a key issue uh, that our society has to confront. We have to find some ways, I think, of making room for people's uh, desires for having decent lives and family wor- uh, work family uh, balance and those kind of self actualization things. I mean, that's I see it in the young people that I that I'm teaching. You know, that people really do want that. On the other hand, there are real needs for security and jobs and those kind of economic things. And I think finding a balance within that is, is going to be really, uh, really key. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because I was wondering, um, you know, what kind of impact in terms of what you're saying, like studying the intellectual yeah. tradition, 
Uh, do you see any implications towards today on social movements in Canada when different social movements fight for values? So, for example, on the one hand, I mean, you're exactly right, because Canada, compared to the rest of the world, is very economically secure. Even people mm -hmm. who have uh, suffered a lot in our country uh, could um, have maybe more economic opportunity tend to than other places in the world. Um, but there's still like so much discontent, right? Like there's lots of kids who grew up who I mean, technically have everything they need, but they are so, they suffer great, they still suffer greatly uh, psychologically. Right. Um, and then on, on the other hand, I'm just going to throw out a bunch of thoughts at you and anyone <laughs> can pick up whatever you find interesting or not. Um, uh, in terms of social movements, uh, in terms of uh, distinguishing between these values, have we maybe jumped the gun on, on moving away from materialist values because for example with indigenous issues there was the missing and murdered uh, indigenous women's right. inquiry um and you know it's so like indigenous issues are so uh important and there's so much work to be done and and economic security and etc mm -hmm. and, and physical security and health and everything is so there's still so much work to be done in that regard. But then when you read these reports written by consultants, it's always like, oh, we need to, you know, we need to think, we need to reflect on our privilege yeah. and we need to, right. you know, write some stories with one another. And we need to, it just seems like it's not matching the gravity of the actual yeah. situation. Yeah. And I was just wondering if that has anything to do with this materialist, post-materialist thing or, or whether that's separate or just yeah. in general any any impact on those two schools of thought on today yeah 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 i mean i think there is a kind of a focus on these kind of post-materialist things that take people away from dealing with the economic inequality issues i think that can happen i think that definitely can happen i don't know if you ever read phoebe uh the perils of uh privilege have you seen that book um, uh, it sounds familiar to me, but I've never yeah, read check it. it out. I'd really recommend it. You know, she lives in Toronto. She's an American scholar, and she it's called the Perils of Privilege, and it, it's it's partly around kind of this uh, this tendency to call people out on their privilege, and that kind of debates that you often see on on social media. Mm -hmm. And her argument, and I tend to agree with her. Her argument is having debates about people's privilege and who's privileged and who's more privileged. It doesn't really move us in the direction of dealing with economic inequalities and kind of like trying to make mm -hmm. social change. Just so kind of pointing out who's on top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then it becomes I'm I'm on you know I'm unprivileged this way, and it becomes a kind of a battle mm -hmm. over that. Of course, there are privileges. There's racism and sexism, and of course, I'm not denying that that's not true. The, the point is sort of like what calling someone on their privilege. Where does that lead in terms of a strategy to 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 talk about the issues that Sony was raising? How are we going to provide water for indigenous communities? To your point, having a debate about like minute privilege between people is almost like paradoxically a privileged argument. And <laughs> it's meta, <laughs> right? But it but it's just points that you have time to be to be dis discussing that instead of making actual. Yeah, it's action, think, right? You have to take yeah. action in this sort of thing. I, you can't just sit. That's and talk another about example it. of where that 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 debate about privilege. I would argue that that came from the elite private colleges. Yeah, that's where the, that's where the young people who started to do that, mm -hmm. and then it's sort of like it migrated everywhere. And yeah, so that's all, kind of what I meant about it. Yeah, I think you're right, and I I, I mean I, I think that's a wasted wasted uh, you know waste of effort. You know, we need to we need to be moving 
towards, we have to talk about strategies to move society so that in the world there's nobody who's poor and, uh, and homeless, right? Mm-hmm. And in our society, there's no homeless people here. And that we need to deal with the reconciliation and land claims of indigenous people. And we need to provide economic opportunities for all Canadians, including uh, people from European descent or settler Canadians, however, whatever language. We need to provide those kinds of things as well as the opportunities for self-actualization and mm-hmm. kind of time to spend with family for doing cre- creative work. So the only useful things, I think, is talking about strategies to get there. Yeah. You know, how are we going to get there? What are we going to do to get there? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That, to me, I'm interested in those questions. I'm not interested in privilege baiting people or having those <laughs> I find that there's a lot of discussion about that sort of stuff online too, but it's all kind of from like a weird, behind a weird veil, people just kind of jump online, like the slacktivism kind of thing. People are just like, oh yeah, we're against this. I'm going to put a post on my Instagram story, but it's like, why don't you donate some money to this cause? Why don't you start a group in your hometown about this cause? You could do a million other things instead of just have a weird argument you could not say anything on instagram yeah it's like if you want to actually like change things i mean probably an instagram comment stream which with a bunch of 17 year olds isn't really the place to do it (laughs) (laughs) people need to be focusing their energies to the proper places i see it as sort of like a outgrowth of what we were talking about earlier with universities no longer caring as much you know generally speaking as a trend uh, about educating people and it's sort of more about like attaining these credentials so it's like it becomes very much about like building up my reputation and then it all becomes just very self-indulgent it's not about solving problems which can be very difficult it can get you in a lot of trouble (laughs) you know you can become very unpopular if you actually speak to truth to power yeah Um, but so it's just all about like oh um engaging in these sort of like uh, rituals and saying these things and doing these things that you agree, you agree, yes, oh, we're all privileged and let's just think about that and let's reflect and how how much have you reflected? I've reflected so much. Yeah. Um, so like, I, th- I feel like that's kind of part of it too, um, mm-hmm. taking okay. it back to the psychosocial, it fulfills this need in people, right? Like, mm-hmm. I guess the, well, what they used to call it was white guilt, right? And it used to be yeah. kind of yeah. obviously laughed at because it was just so yeah. silly. It's like, of course, mm-hmm. this doesn't do anything and it's just yeah. very... Um, it's for your own benefit, no one else's. But it's it's come back with a vengeance with, for example, since we're talking about the privilege discourse, that. And and, and I just think that's that's interesting. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I 100% agree. I think that's very insightful. Whose um, dog is that? Just mine. It's Ainsley's. Oh. <laughs> maybe that was Neil's. <laughs> and just going off every... <laughs> the yelling is so much worse. <laughs> Um, just going off everyone else's points, like identity politics has taken the forefront and class issues kind of have been subordinated and intersectionality has become this like slogan rather than an achievement. And I actually was wondering what your opinion on like Christopher Lash is and his whole book, The Culture of Narcissism, where he talks about we've shifted our attention to appearances. So people are... Um, not caring as much about what is produced, but who's producing it. Um, and I just wanted to know, <laughs> there's a dog situation. <laughs> what do you think about his writings on that and how it yeah. reflects to now? I'm going to have to apologize for bringing it back to Eric Fromm. <laughs> no, it's okay. But, but I'm actually writing an article about Eric Fromm and Christopher Lash. 
Okay. <laughs> You're just on the nose today with your point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about this before. Thank you. I paid you twenty dollars to ask this question. <laughs> uh, see, I think that um, that Christopher Lash um, was a brilliant historian and really super smart, but but he he, he didn't do a very good job, I think, appreciating the rise of feminism and gay rights and various kind of uh, the, the kind of rights that he, that he didn't really um, he, he didn't take a lead in those issues and I would mm-hmm. be I would be critical of him on that uh, on the other hand he was really good at seeing the dangers of a kind of a professional managerial class taking over you know a, a society run by by uh, by social workers and professors that was kind of like an elitist society ramming down kind of like policies through through bureaucracy and legal kinds of things. So I think we have to kind of like try and find some way of combining the kind of critique that Lash had uh, of that kind of professional managerial class and the kind of uh, ideas about uh, gender equality that your generation are you know come come naturally to. And I think also I would say that Twitter is sort of like socially producing narcissism. So it's not just sort of like capitalism and kind of changing family relations. That's what he he focused a lot on changing family relations and kind of the decline of the family. I don't really agree with him on that. But but there was something to what he was saying about society. And Twitter just produces narcissism. People are basically on Twitter thinking that they're, what happened to them today or this little thing that happened to today is sort of like going to be really important for for the whole world, just like Facebook and things. So Facebook and Twitter are creating generations of people who who aren't able to sort of like put aside their own trivial things and to think about, okay, like what am I going to do uh, with my life to make a better world? How am I going to spend the next 20, 30 years of my life thinking about making a better society? I hope all of you, you're so so smart and you have so many creative ideas. I hope you spend 30 years of your life trying to make this a better society and a better world, not just a better Canada, trying to deal with reconciliation with, with Indigenous people and what, what, what we've done to Indigenous people, but uh, making Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians, live a decent life and have a decent life that they can live and spreading a decent life around the world. So that's enough work for 30 years or 40 years. You've got your work cut out for you. And, uh, and we don't have time for sort of like little, you know, narcissistic trivia that kind of that Facebook and, and uh, you know, uh, and Twitter create, you know, and I think we have to say, say no to that. <laughs> yeah, I think people need to see past their own interests and yeah. uh, recognize um, kind of like where how they're participating and what they're like seemingly against kind of thing. And that's how democracy would work well if people are able to see what's in the common interest as opposed to just their own and get out of that bubble. 100%. Okay, well, thank you so much for the wonderful talk. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, for that was wonderful. That. Thank well, you I, so much. I think we, I think we meet, we need to make our universities like this, where we're having these kind of com- conversations about ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and spreading a, and you know, conversations across generations. So I salute you for the work you're doing on this podcast. 
I hope you'll go out into the communities, into universities, and push for change to make sure that we can have these kind of conversations throughout the society every day. So, good <laughs> luck. It's nice to talk to a, a professor nice not online. On the yeah. online. Well, this is online, but you know, online class format. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Take away, take away that all that stuff that gets in the way of learning, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the modern university has kind of. I love the modern university. I'm not for dismantling them and if if uh, conservatives start attacking the university defunding it i'm gonna i'm gonna fight back <laughs> but at the same time i think we have to make some changes to have these kind of conversations happening more and more inside the universities on online so mm-hmm. so thank you for, thank you for this conversation i really yeah. had fun <laughs> You're welcome. Um, thank you thank you so much <laughs> I, I had the nicest time thank you very okay thanks thank thank so much have a lovely day bye, bye. bye.